0: To the Insurrection section, this is the Poor Pearls Almanac, and I'm your guide across these rocky seas. Okay, so what exactly is going on here? Setting the mood, alright? Setting the mood for people to listen to something else? Our tale today begins on the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, sort of. I don't love it. I don't like big water. Definitely not delivering it with confidence either, so... Okay, how's this? So, the waves crashed against the hull of the ship as a child would run his thumb against the curvature of a desiccated scab as the wind- Desiccated scab. We're going
1: to
2: start with that. You know what? Let's just stick to history. You know what? My name's Elliot. Make up your
1: this mind. This is Andy.
2: Welcome back to the Poor Pearl's Almanac. I guess we got to Thank- just take it over.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Good intro.
2: Um, today we're talking about Denmark Vesey, a name you've probably never heard of unless you live in Charleston, South Carolina. And in that case, one, sorry- and two, you've wow. probably only heard of him in the last few years. Any time before that, Denmark was probably considered a crazy guy because of what he tried to do. But, you know, racism. American, is apple pie.
0: But apple pie isn't actually American, as you might think.
2: You lost your chance.
0: Okay, fine. You're right. I was overzealous coming into this.
2: All right, fine, but only because that's about as much as I know.
0: Listen, all's well that ends well, like the swell swells of the ocean as it beats. I'm kidding, guys. It was a joke. (sighs) I just want you to hang it up. You're not a a comedian. You're a damn podcaster. Act like it. (laughs) And that means poorly trying to be a comedian.
2: Stay in your lane, but stay in the audio channel.
0: The audio, yes. So let's talk about the state of South Carolina and denmark Vesey. So unsurprisingly, they have a complicated relationship. The complication is that he, along with 34 other people, were hung over the course of six weeks in July and August of 1822 in Charleston, nine years before Nat Turner- 37 years before John Brown, for context, for allegedly planning to seize a cache of weapons from the local armory, set fires around Charleston, and slaughter the city's entire white population and escape to Haiti.
1: Allegedly.
0: Allegedly. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. Now, while American history classes don't spend much time discussing it, slave rebellions were frequent enough that we should have at least heard about more than two of them.
1: Yeah, I got, let's see, Nat Turner and John Brown, and then you got to do some digging. So that's all I got for public school.
2: Right. Not,
0: not ideal. Kind of shitty.
2: Okay. So what do you want to talk about this one in particular?
0: So there's a lot of like, obviously I think it's important to highlight a story that's been erased, but I also think this story in particular is, it's got some interesting pieces. Denmark very much viewed himself as kind of a, a sacrifice for a greater cause. What's really interesting about what he did in particular is that he used scripture to turn people who otherwise were against violence to see themselves initiating that violence for a greater cause, for emancipation.
1: Okay, so he had a bit of a messianic Jesus complex undertones to it a
0: little bit? Yeah, kind of, except with like some serious bloodlust. So when I say he wanted to kill like all of the people, all the white people, I meant like all of the white people, including women and children. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, and he actually framed it as though it was a defense of the Bible. Since slavery was wrong, it was moral to make amends for these sins. And we'll see that organizing around a common language, that of the rights given to them by their creator in the Bible. And this was a really effective tactic, but with its own limitations, and not just for the obvious reasons, but because the African-American middle class wanted nothing to do with disrupting the economic model based on slavery and many defended slavery from the Bible itself. I think I got to
1: check on their black cards here. I, I need names. I need records.
0: Yeah, there's unfortunately like a lot, like a whole lot. I got nothing but time here. Okay, well, maybe we'll save that for uh, like Patreon content or something. But before we get there, let's do a, a bit of a dive on Denmark the man.
2: Sounds like a shitty cover band of Portugal the man.
0: <laughs> Whiter edition.
2: You, okay, you have who written in here, but I know who Portugal the man is.
0: Okay, then make a comment. (laughs) Okay, don't. All right, so Denmark, or so-called Denmark, not actually his name. We don't know a whole lot about his early life because, you know, early 19th century, former slave. Most of what we do know is actually from the man who once was Denmark's slaveholder, Joseph Fessy. While transporting 319 enslaved persons to St. Dominique, Denmark, about 14 at the time, uh, was recognized as being particularly intelligent, and they decided to actually dress him separately and keep him around like a shiphand, and named him Telemach. Often it's reported that this was his name prior to enslavement, but there's no actual documentation. Or like, at no point did he ever speak about it, or at least nothing that's been kept like records.
2: So they were just like, "You look smart. You're cool. You can come hang out with us."
0: Well, not that cool. Not that when they cool. got to when they got to Saint Dominique, they sold him into the slavery just like the rest. Yeah, not that cool. Not at all. The following year, when our buddy Joseph comes back doing his, you know, annual route of picking up the enslaved and bringing them to St. Dominique, the planter who had purchased Telemach says he's said that he was subject to epileptic fits and that Joseph had to take him back, which he did. So let me guess. My man never had an epileptic fit after that. That would be correct. Telemach returned with Joseph upon settling in Charleston. About 15 years later, Telemach won a lottery, about $1,500, which is about $36,000 today, and he used a third of it to buy his freedom. With the remaining money, he opened a carpentry business and seemed to be living the American dream. Well, as good as it got for a former slave in antebellum Charleston. After his freedom, he changed his name to Denmark, although he was still sometimes called Telemach.
1: Okay, so he... Somehow purchased his freedom, got a little lucky,
0: and now he's got aliases and a business. And a business, yeah. So even in his court documents, when you know after after this whole event takes place, the courts even admit that like it seems so strange that this man who had a successful business had become free, uh, had multiple wives across the city with children. He had so much to risk and so little to gain.
1: I mean, this is a free white man telling him this, but yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, and part of that is that Denmark's wives, some of them were enslaved, and some of his kids. So unsurprisingly, it's not as simple or linear as Denmark was just simply mad about his family, but like a number of pieces went into his decision to do this, and we'll we'll start unpacking that in a few minutes. And a lot of that starts with the church and white fear and we're going to talk about that right after this quick break from probably a very relevant commercial hey we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com on our website we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast which provides more depth and context as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Prols website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorprols.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Okay, so like I said, the Bible was a huge tool in organizing and radicalizing people for, to put it bluntly, war. Part of this was the development of the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston in 1817. Now, this church was the forerunner to the Emmanuel Church that made the news a few years back for reasons we're not going to talk about or glorify.
2: So I know we've talked about the need for there to be an alternative to what the church does, not in the religious sense, but in like the community sense. And the more I think about it, the more I realize it's absolutely fundamental to anything changes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it makes sense. You need to know your neighbors. No one's going to put themselves on the line or shield them from, you know, all the bad things in the world if people don't really know who you are or what you stand for. So I feel like it's kind of simple.
0: Yeah. I mean, part of his, I mean, obviously it's the 19th century, but like going out and meeting people in your community is how you build that sense of community. And that's what he starts doing when he goes, he starts getting involved with this church and starts organizing people. And I think that points to the, to the reality that you do need to have like real community and meat space.
2: I really hate the term meat space a lot. It, it, is the meat, is meat space just the area behind the glass in the deli?
0: No, it is not. Oh, okay. It is, it is the space where your meat is visible in front of other people and their meat and your meat can touch. And that is not a sexual thing. Just don't give me that look. Just
2: platonic meat touching.
0: Just platonic meat touching. Oh my god,
2: it's
1: public transportation is my new nightmare.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, how about how about tactile world? Is that better? Mm. It sounds like some weird carpet place, right?
2: Tactile world. Yeah, it sounds like shed they're carpeting
0: it. Tactile world.
2: Like weird tiles, but um, <laughs> I think it's worse. So yeah. don't try again.
0: Tactile world. This episode brought to you by the number one people in three D flooring tactile world
2: <laughs> sounds like a
1: commercial for minecraft but okay
0: <laughs> right. anyway so after the ame church opened the main churches that everyone went to were basically emptied out in terms of the african-american population and this led to fears that the church was being funded and or supported by abolitionists causing further racial tension and leading to random arrests during services
1: Okay, so white folks are getting nervous that black folks were getting organized into their own spaces and like doing their own thing.
0: Basically, and of those hung, several of them were actually leaders of the church.
1: So if preachers were more supportive of shooting racists, I'd probably be more willing to listen to what they had to say, I, I think. I don't know.
2: So what happened to the original AME church before Emmanuel?
0: So after a number of its leaders were hung, they literally tore it down. Vessi really did, like, you know, a a number on the ego of the aristocrats in the South, because they believed that slavery wasn't bad because it was the way things were supposed to be. It was unfortunate, but the way things were supposed to be.
1: So he put the fear of God in these motherfuckers. Hell yeah.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I want to do with this episode is I really want to point to how the Bible or any text can be leveraged and coordinated around, coordinated organizing, and, like, how we can think about what that might look like. So we're going to talk, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who's listening, about the Bible quite a bit in this episode. So from Denmark's perspective, one of the key points of his argument was that within the book of Joshua from the Old Testament, much like their ancient Israelite counterparts, they were also commanded to arise and destroy their enemies and the city in which they dwelt, both man and woman, young and old, with the edge of the sword. And that's from Joshua 6.21.
1: Yeah, my man woke up one day and chose violence. He was looking for anything in the good book to stay his hand, and he just got a bunch of affirmations to just chop motherfuckers down.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Bible is like one of those things that like, when a book is like long enough and has as many contributors from long period of time, you can really find just about anything that supports your position. And basically, with the whole
1: weight given to it, not the specific content versus... The cultural value, I, I feel like it's a pretty effective propaganda tool. Right. And that, that's what it's been used for.
2: Right. Just look at abortion. Or prohibition. Or gay marriage. Or polyamory. Or rape. Or getting stoned. Hell yeah. Oh wait, no. not the good way. Yeah, no, the bad version, unfortunately. I mean, but- hell,
0: hell no. But maybe also the other kind.
2: Hell yeah, burning bush. Hell, hell yeah.
0: Genesis nine three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But also, Peter five eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour.
1: I feel like this is why I'm not religious. I feel like I got to be high to understand any of that.
0: Yeah, and it's like you can literally justify anything, including. Genocide by what's in the Bible. So, for example, in Samuel 15, 3, Samuel tells King Saul that God wants him to kill the Amalekites. 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 Uh, Samuel tells King Saul that God wants him to kill the Amalekites so that the Israelites wouldn't assimilate their evil ways. End quote. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass.
1: Yeah, I mean, Old Testament God was all about slaying, especially
2: that ass.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well played.
2: Yeah. I mean, this kind of all points to the thing that maybe we shouldn't do things based on our interpretation of super old documents.
0: Listen, the best countries in the world have been built that way, Matthew. Which countries? I will not name them. Okay. Uh, so anyways, (laughs) Uh, another passage that was particularly important for Denmark was Zechariah 14.3. It says, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle.
1: So slavery was a religious war for him, legit, like he was fighting the white devil, like straight up.
0: Absolutely. A hundred percent. He opened multiple meetings in the church where he would meet with people at night. With Exodus twenty one sixteen, and it reads, He that stealeth a man and selleth, or if he can be found in his hand shall surely be put to death, end quote. So to follow the word of God quite literally meant killing every single slave owner, good or bad.
2: Don't hate that, though.
0: And when people were nervous about the idea of murder, because, I mean, it's murder, like, I, I get it. He dropped some of that, like, Weekend Dad Bible content from the New Testament. John fourteen twenty seven. let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid.
1: Yeah, so you can just go into the Bible like a mixed bag, get the Old Testament, get the New Testament, just kind of scrabble, scrabble it around and just
2: pull out what you got. There you go. It's like pick a mix.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, if it comes from the <laughs> you Bible, say like the it means more if you just make it up in your head and say it out loud.
0: Yeah, if you're just like, that's what it says in the Bible, people are like, oh, 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 something like that. I don't know. I don't usually talk to people about the Bible, to be honest. This is a lot for me right now.
2: Yeah, I was wondering what percentage of people you've talked about the Bible with have gone, whoa, whoa.
0: (laughs) All of them, Matt, because the number is zero. (laughs) Uh, So like I said before, though, uh, when we started this episode, it's not necessarily about the content in the Bible that's particularly unique, but the authority that comes with it. And that's something that we've seen throughout history. We're seeing it today, just looking at, like, laws that senators are trying to pass. Now, while Vesey focused on the Bible as his tool to recruit, one of his other associates, a guy named Gullah Jack, resorted to traditional African religious and medicinal practices to appeal to the interests of the largely indigenous African community.
1: Yeah, and Gullah culture is still pretty misunderstood and unknown in the U.S., especially outside of the Southeast.
0: Yeah, I think they did an episode on um, the cooking one, Top Chef. There was like one episode on Top Chef, and I thought that was pretty cool. It was a couple of years ago. But it's, yeah, when I lived in Charleston, actually, for a bit, I always found the Goa community to be like really fascinating. And as I had some family down there, so I traveled down there as a kid a bit. It, it's it's so much different. It, it somehow has existed as like this sect that is still so disconnected from the rest of like conventional modern culture in a lot of ways. Yeah, Gullah culture has always been and has continued since this time really about finding ways to integrate traditional African practices into Christianity. And if you've ever driven down like Route 17 going into Charleston, especially talking 30 years ago, like basket makers and stuff would still be on the sides of the road selling like homemade baskets. And that seems so out of place in conventional modern America.
2: So it was about like, providing leadership that reflected the people he was trying to organize.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was very politically thought uh, about like, okay, if these are the populations that exist in this area, how do I engage with them in a language that they understand? And they don't have to see eye to eye necessarily, but they have to have the same common vision of the major problem here. And that was slavery. And that by continuing to allow slavery to exist, they were not respecting their gods, their ancient texts, whatever it might have been. And, you know, conversely, this is the same exact method that the slave-owning class used in applying the Bible as well. Speaking of the slave-owning class, let's listen to some ads about how things are going perfectly good and great right now, and the world will just continue to get gooder and greater for the rest of forever. Well said. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Poles Almanac, and- And we're not the Poor Poles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow, today-
2: And I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Fronts.
0: Tomorrow today is our
2: chance to talk to folks about cutting edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like. But today...
0: We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics? Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this going to be another Doomer question? No.
2: Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on Instagram.
0: Well, I'm feeling a whole lot happier about life after that.
2: In the immortal words of cartoons, everything is
0: awesome. I mean, everything is cool when you're a cog in the machine. Do you guys at least know that reference? The Legos movie?
2: Right, that's what I thought it
0: was. I thought it was from Gears of War. Everything is awesome went Yeah. So speaking I of, thought it was from Gears of War, yeah. The no, I mean it might be originally, but I know it from the Lego movie with Will Ferrell. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so anyways,
2: Lego fan super fan or super Lego movie fan. super fan revealed.
0: This is going to be <laughs> crushing to the brand. Yes, crushing. So speaking of being a cog in the machine, let's talk about Denmark for for real this time.
2: Population at the time 1.2 million
0: enslaved population in the u.s around the same time two million everything was awesome now denmark vesey as a representative figure represented more people than denmark the country that's pretty impressive
1: yeah it's a lot of slaves i guess
0: yeah so we started this episode comparing what he did with some of the the major figures that people know nat turner and john brown and not to take anything from them but like pointing out how much sooner what he did was and how much of an inspiration he probably was for their efforts. Now, Denmark also wasn't the first person to do any of this kind of stuff. He also wasn't the first person to make a theological argument against slavery. There have been voices actively arguing against slavery throughout history, especially in the United States, despite, you know, what the United States did. What was unique was that Denmark didn't view this as a a philosophical debate about who is more correct, but instead look to the Bible for commands on how to act against those committing these crimes.
1: Yeah, I feel like that makes sense. Like if you're gonna make everybody else share the same religious views and religion, the least you could do is live according to those rules that you've set forth, right?
0: Yeah, and that's where things start getting really interesting for Vessi. Part of the plan to take over the city also included trapping the white preachers within the city and explicitly asking them why they didn't follow the verses that he so often preached to his audience, as well as a passage from Zechariah which prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem.
2: So he was really into, like, divine condemnation and destruction.
0: Yeah, it still reminds me of a little bit of Tank Girl. You still gotta see it, Andy. Still haven't seen it, Elliot. I mean, of course you haven't, but you gotta... I know, it's on It's on the list, C- Elliot. i telling you, man. See, Which, see how it feels? Kangaroo
1: iced tea will change your life, you gotta see it.
0: <laughs> kangaroo iced tea. Ugh, kangaroos. So, while he was inspired by the Bible, his plan wasn't. The plan, as was explained in two different confessions, focused around setting fires to the governor's mills, as well as multiple homes near the docks. As the firearms began to ring and chaos ensued, the rebels would slaughter the men as they came out of their homes and follow up with the women and children. And what's interesting is that this wasn't some guy who had always lived on the edges of contemporary society. He was vocal in his abolitionist position, and both with white men and enslaved black men equally.
1: Okay, so at the time, it's got to be... Well, it's surprising to me that I guess a black man was allowed to speak freely about slavery at this time, like in public. It, this wasn't just like a you know dark bars or wherever people congregate to yep. spew hate about the nation. Like it sounds like it was pretty public and kind of in your face in broad daylight.
2: Yeah, it sounds like if this guy was like preaching this stuff, he would have become like a pretty prominent enemy of the. Uh, slave owners.
0: Yeah, you know, this, I think, really points to how our history classes really fail us, like, spectacularly. You know, context is huge. Slavery was contentious, not just because it wasn't allowed in the North in the same country, but also because there were more enslaved people than whites in the city. Never mind the rural countryside just outside of the city borders, and almost 5% of the city's population, despite all of this, was still made up by free Africans. And because of a story we don't have time to cover, only a few decades prior, involving a drunk soldier accidentally causing people to think a slave rebellion was happening, which, by the way, led to a quick lynching of a man at the wrong place in the wrong time, the courts in Charleston were particularly aware of how poor treatment to African and African Americans could quickly spiral, both in terms of the criticism from the North, Europe, and in a region where an uprising could quickly happen, given the conditions that, you know, most of the population was enslaved in this area. So like it it was a really precarious situation where I think the government understood they could only step in in the most extreme cases because they were afraid of things basically ramping up.
1: It seems like a lot of this boils down to whether or not an illusion of power exists and can be upheld. Uh, Obviously, guns and arms and so on plays into power, but the reality that there's more people who will die to end slavery versus people who will die to keep slavery, it hits hard and it's gotta make it harder to keep like that power structure in place once those dominoes start to fall.
0: Yeah. So they had to be very smart or astute, I guess, about when it was appropriate to like react to people being publicly against slavery. So that power dynamic was really scary for a number of reasons. We see that not just play out even in the black community, not just in Charleston, but across the entire country. Now, after Vesey's trial, uh, which we'll talk about at some point, whether it's today or the next episode, the black church leaders and allies in Charleston condemned him way harder than the white clergy, including folks like Benjamin Palmer, who worked to support the building of the African Methodist Episcopal Church and was worried about the impact Denmark's actions on the black community's access to that church. But turned out to be pretty valid. Ultimately, voices across the country use that same Bible to support the natural way of things in fear of retaliation. So you've got a
1: natural order that's being disturbed. And even though, based on the numbers of what you just said, if more and more people recognized the power structure does not support the population, it should be cut and dry that the people who are against slavery actually do have the the majority, basically. And it, the natural way of things is to pretend that they're the minority and to just make it go away and keep things the way they are
0: yeah the thing that really stuck out to me when i was doing this research is the fact that you know black leaders were much harder on him than the white slave owners right but
1: that was fear from blowback like, and not rec not recognizing yeah. the fact that you actually do have a dog in the fight and you can win
0: yeah and like i, I i'm trying to like think about this the dynamics at play and like placing them in, like, a more modern setting and how I feel like that's something that we see quite a bit, where people s- seem to be hypercritical of people on their side and, like, in that process make people feel like there's less support for something that might be commonly supported. Mm-hmm. And and that's, like, you know, there's there's a lot to pull out of it and, like, really you know understand the dynamics because it's while scenarios always change and there's an infinite amount of players and you know whatever's going on whether it's Ukraine Russia this um you know whatever it doesn't matter the dynamics are intimately human right the the way we relate to one another we relate to power all of those things don't really fundamentally change it's that the pieces change and that's why i think sometimes it's really important to look at these kind of historical stories and like especially this one where it's so heavily centered on the Bible, that in the world we live in today, understanding how that, was, that dynamic played out is, in my opinion, really important. Mm. So uh, to get back to my buddy Benjamin Palmer, who was the very vocal person worried about the church and condemning Denmark, what's really interesting is that in his sermons after this incident, he hyperfixates on Denmark without ever actually saying his name, including one particular sermon that has been documented where he talks, and I swear to God this is true about a slave who wrongs his master with ungrateful criminal conduct. <laughs> fuck that guy.
2: <laughs> what a bitch. <laughs> That's what divine providence does to a motherfucker.
0: At one point, he argues that enslaved people wearing clothes that don't align with their station in life are blasphemous. All right, I, I take that back. Don't, not <laughs> Fuck that guy, yes,
1: but we're ju- I'm just ready to burn down the entire city now. Charleston's got to go. All right, so- Last and quote on
2: this guy. That's what I was guy. saying from the beginning.
0: <laughs> uh, so this this last quote from him, it really strikes at the heart of the point that I'm getting at, specifically in Denmark's case about how he was really hung out to dry. It was when our boy Palmer uses a metaphor, and I'll, I'll quote it. A child to know... I already hate it. I know, I know. Let me finish it. So, in quote, a child ought to know by the treatment of a parent toward him that he is a child. And a servant ought to know in the same way that he is a servant, end quote.
1: Yeah, okay, so did Danny put him on a spit like Vlad the Impaler style or something? Did <laughs> should have spikes around the city?
0: <laughs> they did, but yeah, we're not gonna go there. The thing is, uh, and I, I've kind of been hinting at it at this point, this was not an abnormal response by the church, but in Benjamin's case, it was the first. And while he argues that slaves need to know their place, his words, not mine, I'm sure, that'll get taken out of context isolate, someday. Isolated, he, uh, <laughs> he also uses the current tension caused by a bigger culprit and um, one that Elliot got to spend some time researching last spring: alcohol, the old bait and switch. Exactly, it's not the system of slavery, but the fact that massa has a drink in his hand.
1: Yeah, for some reason, he always hits harder when he has a drink in his hand. <laughs>
0: When, when master has got a drink in his hand, you should just accept that's the way it is, is what he's saying. Right? Oh, God. One last guy I want to talk about. Uh, this guy, Reverend Richard Furman. His first sermon after Vesey was executed was about how the day of his execution needed to become a holiday for, in quote, a day of public humiliation, end quote. And the governor of South Carolina appreciated his request so much, he had the letter request published, with the belief that the letter would make slaves, in quote, more contented with their lot, but more useful to their owners, end quote. Elliot, I'm showing you a picture of this piece of garbage. Look at him.
1: Yeah, he looks like a freshly shined thumb, like he just got, like his head just got sucked on.
2: (laughs) Where did his hairline go? He looks like the mascot for an even blander oatmeal.
0: (laughs) Oats. Just I don't know. What the fuck would you call Blander oatmeal?
2: I mean, I'm thinking like cream of wheat that's like mixed. You can with. just call it cream of white. Look at him. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cream of food. Uh oh, yeah. Man. yeah, this um,
2: guy this guy looks like
0: a weenie. He looks like a weenie in classic matte form. Mm-hmm. Uh the one thing that these two God, do, I hate his weak chin. I can't look at it anymore. He's so British, right? <laughs>
2: and watch it
0: <laughs> sorry matt i mean you've got that beard to hide hide the the britishness all right, oh, that's got a strong
2: chin i can you. see it from here <laughs> yeah look get in profile
0: giving us a little flex right now with this chin uh so one of the things that these two guys did though despite all of their like awful shitty things was trying to protect the right of blacks to read in the city whites and charleston were afraid that if they had continued to have the ability to read, it would mean they would find more words from the Bible about insurrection. The problem, of course, wasn't whether or not the Bible could justify either position, because obviously, as we've pointed to, it could. But rather that it would provide something to cause the enslaved within the community to rally behind that was far greater than themselves
2: yeah it's like it's a fine line really between placating marginalized people and using that to defang their movements and also letting this same people get a taste of how things could be different. The New Deal, I guess was similar in an attempt to quell revolutionary talk in the u s capitalism began its like first major global contraction, and with the rise of the Soviet Union, it became clear an alternative was possible. And that was scary if you were rich.
0: Yeah, now everybody's a communist. For a while, it did seem like it. But the aristocracy of the South, and this frames up some of the realities of how slavery worked, they actually often weren't okay with slave abuse. Their whole argument was that they were the nobles, that they weren't going to give up their financial gains from being slave owners, but they also framed it as a noble relationship, which... They were the beneficiaries. It was the, like I said, the quote unquote, natural way of things. And it was right to be just and equal with their slaves within that, again, natural way of things framework.
1: Yeah, that's fucked up because when somebody comes and like takes you away from your life and makes you have one that you don't want, like the natural way of things is to remove that mother's head with a machete.
2: Right. It's like, it's like the holdovers from old school, like war battles where each side just like lines up in a field and takes a shot and there's no like better tactics
0: yeah basically a lot of these guys like our our reverend here towed the line on that that it was right for the enslaved to have access to the word of god and that shouldn't be taken away because of the actions of a few and his words to take away the bible from the enslaved was in quote not logical just or pious end quote in some ways, he was actually playing along with the ideology of the Southern gentlemen who believed themselves to be holding like a a biblical patriarchy.
2: He was just Joe Biden.
0: Yes, he was. It might have actually been Joe Biden. He is old enough.
2: <laughs> Are we sure it's not Joe Biden?
0: Actually, hold on. We got to scroll back up to that picture. He kind of looks like Joe Biden. It does kind of look like Joe Biden? I mean, yeah,
2: but he's like younger. Right? He's in the picture. Well, that in would this make picture, sense. it's like a nicer glow about him.
0: Well, yeah, it was one hundred and fifty years ago. Of course, he had a nicer glow. Uh, so not saying it's true or false but we're absolutely saying that referend richard Furman is joe biden i mean it makes sense they all want the
1: same thing they want everybody to be friends but ultimately change nothing that's meaningful and just kind of keep that natural way of things
0: yeah and the, the the whole point of being like you know we are pious in doing this thing. We want you to be able to read. We, you know, we want good things from you. Within this framework is that the enslaved were supposed to be happy to take their place in the relationship and understand the master had his own struggles to bear, and each was supposed to take theirs in stride. It's messed up. I, I don't really
1: like liberals today, but I think I hated them more from the 19th century.
0: Yeah. Now, obviously, Furman wasn't the only guy making this case. This was kind of the the radical centrist of the 19th century. And they wanted to like policy wonk why the best of both worlds was ideal. This is basically like Pete Buttigieg 150 years ago. Arguments were made that things like slavery kept people out of poor houses and reduced the need to tax because it would fall on the masters to take care of the destitute.
1: Yeah, it's still fucked
0: up. Yes, yes. And the reason I wanted to bring all this up before we even like have the actual story of Denmark discussed is because. I think it helps us better understand the, uh, let's call it philosophical context of what exactly went down. Like, it's easy to say that there were good, there was good and bad pro and anti-slavery people, but like saying people are pro and anti-capitalism today paints kind of a a too wide of a brush and ignores how certain people or players can like co-opt the revolutionary spirits of people under the guise of like finding middle ground. And it raises an important question of whether or not these people, you know, hurt any real progressive movement. Like, I think about, like, you know, a couple of years ago, are you voting for Bernie or Biden or whatever? And is even voting for them, like, a worthwhile thing? Like, where does that fall into this spectrum? And what's interesting here is we can see this on a longer timeline, right? We're able to look at how the fall of slavery came in the United States and try to understand if these kinds of actions, even if well-intentioned, were good or bad. Like, was it a good or bad thing that these people wanted the enslaved to be able to read? I, not that sounds that sounds terrible, but I think you yeah, know what I mean, but right? I'm just,
1: the thing that's kind of catching me up is it's been it was less than a hundred years prior that these same landowners and stuff fought a war to get out from under being slaves to a king that was three thousand miles away and then flash forward to them trying to hold on to their fortunes and they're doing the exact same thing the king three thousand miles away was doing, which is trying to hold down and oppress people that are making the money. What kind of mental gymnastics and like philosophy philosophical gymnastics do you have to do to make it so that you justify other people not being able to fight the same fight that you just fought and won? It's
2: all about that money.
1: <laughs> it's
0: all about that money. Yeah. Like, you know, in terms of like, all right, so I'll ask you guys both this question. Like, you guys, have you read Uncle Tom's Cabin? Either of you I've read
1: excerpts. Not the whole thing, though.
0: Okay. So, like, basically, the, the crux of the piece is like, who is worse? The good slave owner that's like really good to the people he's enslaved, maybe, you know, buys them, lets them live their own life, just has to do their part to keep things going, or the bad slave owner who like whips the people that he's enslaved. And there, uh, before you answer, the good slave owner makes it much easier to live within that system and allow it to continue for, and the, the bad slave owners can hide behind that good guy, right? So which one's actually worse in the long run? Like individually, obviously, there's one that's better than the other, but on the on a bigger timeline, which one's actually? I mean, you know my answer. I think they both have a head too many.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's, (laughs) I think it's really hard to just like even point to an action as like, or you know, an action or you know, as like good or bad in like the long course of like a progressive movement.
0: Yeah. And yeah, like, I'm, like, just to, like, sorry to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. Try to imagine, like, I'm a white guy. So if I lived in the South in 1820, and say I'd made money from something, like, totally unrelated to slaves. And would it be a good or bad thing if I said I'm going to to provide people that have been enslaved a safe place to live? And that that's, like, I guess ultimately the idea would be that you should let them be free. But, um, I don't know, it, it's complicated because people do... Bad things for good reasons, and it makes shit hard.
1: I guess to to frame this up, I think it would be different if there was, say, not a slave owner. If there was a person who could get people to work for him without forcing them to be slaves, <laughs> still doing the same amount of work and still getting the same, you know, profits yeah. and stuff, but somehow he'd get somebody, you know, fair wage, whatever, safe place to live, whatever it is. That person, that I, I, I just feel like the whole point of the slavery is the whole arm twisting like where you don't have a choice so just because you put some sugar on top of the no no choice doesn't make it a a good thing or a bad thing it's still shitty it's just got sugar on it now
0: all right Mm. so to get to the to the core of the question though if which one is worse if you had to pick one or the other do you think having a bad uh slave owner i
1: would like my shit sandwich with sugar on top please
0: massa yes (laughs) Because, like, the idea is that if some slave owners are nicer, then it's going to take longer until there's revolution, right? Whereas if slave owners are complete assholes, chances are people are going to have nothing to lose much quicker. Yes. So on a longer timeline, maybe more people are enslaved because slave owners were nice, quote-unquote, nice, right? Um so, yeah, I, it's, I think, like, a really interesting philosophical question of, like, kind of, like, pulling off a Band-Aid. Is it better to make it slow and less painful or, like, painful and short?
2: I do think that's, like, a very, like, macro, you know, perspective when, like, the other part of it is, like, people, you know, have their, like, lives to live. Like what, what Elliot yeah. said, you know, rather, rather sugar on top if it's, like, my life.
0: Yeah, like, individually, I think everyone would be like, yeah, I want to live on the... If I have to be enslaved, I want my slave owner to be a not-shitty person. Um, but, like, to translate that now to, like, modern times, like, when we vote, for example, it, do we do we think the same way? Do we vote for, just for example, Joe Biden because we can't have Denmark Vesey run for president? You know I what mean, I mean? That's
1: what all elections are, is...
0: <laughs>
1: you're picking the lesser of, of two evils. Is never a
0: good choice. But to this point, then is the lesser of two evils actually better in the long run?
1: I I think you're just stretching out the inevitable. We've already talked about that. You're just delaying the inevitable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So again, like to my point, I made up like 10, 15 minutes ago, like the thing that I think is really unique and special about this story is not only how Denmark did it, but also like how you can see these power dynamics and how they can play out in different ways, in different scenarios and more modern scenarios. Now this whole, you know, this quote unquote natural order of things. It hasn't always been the way the South had treated slavery, but it was uh, a much more soft way to gum up some of the like necessary evil type position that had backed slavery for previous centuries. And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the next episode about that things weren't actually so good at the time for slave owners, not because their lives were terrible, but because of a bunch of other things that were going on. So again, going back to the question of how the middle ground plays in this. Yeah, all I know
1: is when I'm ready to start a revolution, I'm going to wrap myself in either a a Bible or a flag because otherwise people are just going to think I'm crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's all you got to do. Yeah. So so, uh, next episode, we're going to jump into part two, and that's the actual story of Denmark Vesey and the almost uprising in Charleston. Hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. So far, it's definitely one of the more unique ones we've done. And part two and three of this are going to be really fun because we're going to be able to talk shit about white people and how to coordinate the masses. So that sounds pretty fucking fun.
1: I guess. I got to go figure out how to use a whetstone and sharpen up my machete for next episode.
0: Hell yeah. (laughs) Slaves need to know their place.